The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This was largely geared towards the survivors at home. Once they're at home doing this and some very simple strategies for how to do it. And I love the video recording piece. I know some people are shy to look at themselves on camera, but you don't have to show it to anybody. Um, you know, and the people that love you won't care anyway. They will be happy to see your progress. To recap our previous episode on bilateral training, we talked about what bilateral training is. We discussed Jill Whittall's research and her invention, the tailwind, which we decided is great for clinic use, not so much for home because of the cost. And you may or may not agree with that. There are some simple and effective strategies for using this technique at home. And Pete explains those in his book, Stronger After Stroke, starting on page 118. There's even a picture of his wife demonstrating how to do it in the book. The key point for bilateral training is to use unchained movements. And lastly, we both noted that we don't see it used much in the clinic. So if you are using bilateral training clinically, please tell us all about it. Noggins and neurons at gmail.com. And remember to spell out the word and. Hi, Debat Estella. Como esta? Está bene? Muy bien. Gracias. Me <laughs> <laughs> too? Bene, grazie. Of course, we're speaking different languages, but that's yeah. okay. We're trying to get as broad an audience as we possibly can. Yeah. And we got Spanish-speaking folks and Italians. Um, but yeah. Okay. So, okay. Um, so this episode is going to be about measuring outcomes or outcome measures, or just for people that are caregivers and survivors, maybe just measuring progress is a good way of putting it. Yes. Yeah, there are different reasons why we are measuring. And, and so clinically, we're often measuring outcomes to 
show the validity of the therapy, progress, get reimbursement, all of all of those important things. But for the survivor at home, there are other reasons to measure progress. True. And and then there's the research. Don't yeah. forget about the researchers. Don't. Can't forget about the researchers. Because it, our perspective in research is slightly different. We need to publish this stuff. So we need to make sure it's like uber, uber accurate and that there's reliability and validity. There's validity to the tests that we do and reliability within the testers. And so it's a whole thing. Um, well, you just you just made a comment about two really big words, important words that sometimes people get mixed up in clinically, and some people might not even know what they mean. So I wonder, could you explain those? So validity is, does the test, I hope I'm getting this right. It's been a while. Does it test what it's claiming to test? So is like it- you wouldn't You wouldn't use... I don't know, a a scale to measure how much wind velocity there is. So it's it's got to be a valid test. Right. Reliability has to do with whether or not you can use the test in a way that gives you act that gives you consistent data over time. One talks about whether it's appropriate for that thing. And the other is, can you trust it once you collect data? Um, There's two kinds of reliability in case you care about this stuff. Like there's inter-rater reliability. That's if you did the test and I did the test on the same person, will we get the same score? And then there's intra-rater reliability. If I test the same person twice and there's been no change, do I get the same score? And in clinical research, I've done a lot of testing testers to see if they're doing the test correct. Um, So I spent 12 years doing uh, doing tests, outcome measures for stroke survivors. Okay. There was a joke around our lab at Kessler when I worked there that I had um, Fugelmired, which is a, a big upper extremity. Well, it's a lower extremity test too, but I had Fugelmired half the, the state of New Jersey, which was not true, but it was funny among us lab rat nerds. Um, so I've done a lot of these tests. Um, that particular test, I've done more than anybody else in the universe. And if they find another universe, I've done more than anybody there. Okay thousands and thousands of these things. And then in the latter half of my career, I spent teaching other people how to do these tests, making manuals so that if you, like we had a very large multi-site trial, it was a company that thought it came up with a pill for brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is very important during the subacute phase and helps propel recovery. Anyway, every major rehab hospital in the country was involved and they hired us at Ohio State at that point, me and, and Steve Page, uh, our fearless leader in our lab, to be spearhead the measuring of, of outcomes to see if people were actually getting better or not. So I went around the country training people on these very complicated tests. And it was kind of a nightmare because they're very difficult tests to, to train. I only had a couple of days out there. I would fly out there, stay a night, do it over a couple of days. And then for us to publish it, we had to show 90% inter-rate reliability that the scores would agree with all the other scores that we were collecting from all the other major rehab hospitals around the country. And so they had to pass a test. So I was testing the testers, as I mentioned before. And the way we set this up is they would test a brain injured person doing whatever the test was and, and they would videotape it. Then they send me the videotape and I would have to score them. And the problem was they had to score 90% or above, or they couldn't collect data. And now, you know, I'm a physical therapist assistant. So in rehab, I'm like at the lowest end of the totem pole. And here I come galloping in on my white horse and telling them that they didn't pass the test. And we had a big failure. You know, 50% of them would fail on the first try because you had to get 90%. What test do you have to get 90% on? So 
it was uh, that's kind of what my career has been about. So measuring outcomes though has a couple of different elements. I mean, you're talking about how a therapist might look at it to justify therapy, to justify payment. Then there's researchers that are trying to collect data to prove a point or disprove something. And then you have the people that we really should be talking to, which are the survivors. And they need simple ways that they can measure because otherwise you don't know if you're getting better. Right. So maybe we should start talking about where you start measuring, like a baseline and what that is and how you get one. Yeah. So a good place to start, I think, would be walking. I mean, speed of walking tells you a ton of stuff. It, if you, the walk, faster you walk, oh, here's a good one, the longer you'll live. They have good studies that show that your speed of gait will indicate how long you live. It's so indicative of things like falls and fear of falling, whether you're a community ambulator. I mean, it's just a ton of stuff that it tells you. And what we use in clinical research, and I would suggest that if they can do it safely, the people with brain injury also do it, is called the 10-meter walk test, right? So you would try to get how fast you can walk, and it doesn't have to be 10 meters. It can be whatever you want to be. I mean, in skilled nursing facilities, I would do from the door jam of one door to the door jam of another door, just because that was a standardized thing in our hallway. And as long as I was consistent, it's distance divided by time if you wanted to do that. But you could just make it a competition with yourself within the parameters of safety. Because as soon as you start walking fast, you can put yourself at risk for a fall. Yeah. Question about this. Do you have to walk independently or can you have assistance? So, Assistance that helps propel you forward, I would say, no, nah, that's it's you're probably not at the 10 meter walk test okay. thing because you know how assistance is you give it to a 350 pound bodybuilder, that assistance is going to be a lot more than maybe somebody who is a little bit more hands off. So, yeah. but if it's what we would call standby assist, where in case something goes south, then that's okay. And okay. I would suggest the way you might keep it safe is not doing the fastest you can do, but what they call self-selected walking speed. And that's the way the 10 meter walk test is done anyway. So you say to him, look, imagine you're walking across your living room. How fast would you walk? Just walk like that. Okay. And we take away the first three meters and we take away the last three meters. So it's the middle 10 meters. So we have a ramp up because we don't want to get the speed up time. We just want to get the 10 meters in the middle. So the speed up time, we don't count that. And we hit a stopwatch as soon as they cross a line on the floor. At the 10 meter mark, we click the stopwatch again. And then we have them walk another three meters just to kind of let them deaccelerate on their own. They sit down, they do it twice, we average the two. But look, you can do this stuff easily at home just by measuring the speed of your walking over time. Just do self-selected so you're safe. And you can have an assistive device if you have a cane or whatever it is that you use. Uh, you could do it that way. Was that kind of what your question was about? It was, and you answered the next part of it. I was going to ask about using an assistive device because we always want people to use those devices if they're recommended. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to do a walking test and just leave your cane there because then I, bad things will happen. We hate yeah. falls. We hate yes, falls. we do. Absolutely. We do. So, but there's a lot of stuff that you can measure at home. You can time how long it takes to button a button or zip in a zip a jacket. Um, how long it takes to 
put a dish in the dishwasher. Um, you can even time how long it takes to put a jacket on. That's a good one. Yeah. In fact, we do that. There's a research uh, test for that. It's called the arm motor ability test. I've done it millions of times and we measure upper body dressing. So, And that's what we measure. We look at the timing. We also look at the quality of movement. So when you're looking at quality of movement, what are some of the things that you're looking at? Um, so it's a five point scale and it's kind of a nightmare. Um, I forget it off the top of my head, but you're looking at, did it take more than one time to get their hand through the sleeve? Did the other extremity assist? If you're trying to get your arm through a sleeve, was the elbow actively extending or was it just rolling it up with the other hand? It's that kind of stuff. Okay. Typical, actually the, the arm motor ability test has two five point scales. It's quality of movement and, and I forget the other one, but you're, you're trying to do 15 different things at once and you're timing other, every subtask. This is why it's hard for, for therapists okay. to do it often. But there's some even simpler ways of measuring stuff. Did you have a, something else you wanted to say about that? No, no. I, I think that's a very good one to do at home. Oh, measuring how, how fast you can put something on. I would get rid of the quality of movement mm-hmm. and just go for the speed. Problem. Yeah. 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 The other thing that you can do, and I encourage everybody to do this, is videotape yourself over time. Mm-hmm. Because if you see it, you're going to know whether you're moving better, if it's more fluid, if it's more coordinated. And then the other thing is, if you're having trouble with dysarthria, just so aphasia is trouble figuring out what you want to say, or um, that's expressive aphasia. Receptive aphasia is, do you understand what's being said to you? But then there's this other thing, dysarthria. And sometimes people who are dysarthric, it's the oral motor stuff. So they talk like they have marbles in their mouth, but they have no trouble figuring out what they want to say. That's not the issue. It's just the oral motor stuff, that kind of stuff. So you might work with a speech therapist and go, you know, I just want, I'm not a speech therapist. My daughter's going to go to grad school to become a speech therapist and it's going to send me bankrupt. But I don't really know what they work on, but they might work on just the letter T. So you go, T. If you can audio record that or audio record yourself saying a standardized sentence that you stay standardized over time, and this is an important concept, that you're always measuring apples to apples. Yes. If you can can do that and record the same sentence over an arc of time, you can get a really nuanced sense of whether or not your dysarthria is decreasing, but also your aphasia if the the words just come to you Mm -hmm. quicker. So there's all kinds of tests you can do. Uh, so talking about standardizing, it's the same sentence at maybe the same time of day, because I know that fatigue is a factor in in dysarthria and aphasia as well. So the more tired you get, the harder it can be to think of words. Yeah. And, and with walking, it's the same thing. I mean, when we have people in these big rehab hospitals collect data for us, we have them do the same tests in the same order because we want the same amount of fatigue. And then we have them do it at the same time of day because everybody walks, for instance, faster in the morning than they do in the afternoon. And this is tough for clinicians because they might see Mr. Smith at 5 p.m. on Monday and do the 10-meter walk test. and then But they see them because that's the way the schedule worked out at 9 a.m. on Wednesday 
well, of course he's walking faster on Wednesday because it's at 9 a.m. So we encourage therapists to always try to get it the same time of day, the same shoes, the same everything, the same hallway, the same, you know, when you say ready, set, go, that you're consistent with ready, set, go go, that you start the timer on the word g, the percussive part of the word. I mean, we get crazy with this stuff. Look, think of a second grader. You know, second graders are always on the playground and they're always coming up with these competitions to see who's better at whatever the heck they're trying to figure out. Be a second grader. Come up with little games that you can play as long as it's apples to apples. That is that you're measuring exactly the same thing over time. That's good data. I don't care who came up with the test. Yeah. So people at home, do you have a time frame that you recommend? I know if if you check yourself too soon, it's going to look like you're not making any change at all. And then oh. if you, you know, if you watch a video, if you do this every day, you might not see change day to day. So weekly, monthly, what are your thoughts on that? So we're very draconian about it in research. In fact, before we start an intervention, we do two tests before they even start. We call it pre one and pre two, because we want to make sure they're not getting any better or any worse on their own. Mm. And this is especially important during the subacute phase when they often get a lot better on their own when you do nothing. Yeah. Of course, we handle that by having a control group that does nothing or does some other sham thing. We try to blind it and whatever. Um, you're asking how often it should be done. Yeah, so- at home. And I'm thinking about what we what we spoke about in the, the very first episode with uh, neuroplastic change taking longer and more in the chronic stages. Mm-hmm. Or-, or it takes more time. Yeah. When people go to the gym, they're always writing down the amounts that they did and they're trying to show progress. I don't think there's a set thing. You want to say once a week? Yeah. Okay. Once a week. Well, I think what's more important is that you do it the same time of day. You're wearing the same clothes. You're in the same frame of mind. Um, those same room. Um, try to make everything as apples to apples as you possibly can. Okay. So then it should maybe be the same distance of time. So if you're going to do it weekly, do it weekly. If you're going to do it biweekly, do it biweekly. Yeah. That's yeah. That's know. probably so. that's probably a that's probably a good idea. I mean, certainly in research, we do it. In For clinicians, it's hard to do it like that, I would think, sometimes, because sometimes you have more time to do a test mm-hmm. than, than you uh, would, and maybe they're up for a reevaluation, and so you're doing it during the reeval or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on the setting that you work in, too. That's true. I, you know, I know for acute care, it was. It seems like every progress note is an evaluation. So that's right. You know, yeah. yeah they need a lot more data because it's a lot more sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the situation is more sensitive. It is. So another question, sort of a corollary to that, is let's say week over week, and I'm just going to stick with walking because it's a simple one. Week over week you're walking a little bit faster in your self-selected walking speed. Okay. And then all of a sudden you plateau. Let's say you're five years post the brain injury and, you, and you're not getting any faster. What the heck is going on now? Okay. So that then the question becomes, how good is whatever I'm doing to train myself to walk a little bit faster? Well, maybe the first question is, do I need to walk any faster? But let's assume that you do. You need to be able to cross streets. You need to be able to get your get your stuff and you're sick of walking slow. Um, now, all of a sudden, you're not walking any faster. The importance of the measure is it tells you whether or not whatever you're doing to walk faster is working. And there's a number of things that you can do to try to walk faster. Maybe we can do a whole episode on that, but maybe it's time to 
Switch things up a little bit. You're really an athlete. Athletes and musicians do this all the time. Athletes are always trying to chip away at their ability. They don't believe in plateaus. I mean, we are, we're all plateaued into a plateau when, as we age as an athlete. Um, but you know, even then they're trying to chip away at things. Mm-hmm. They might chi- change diet. They might change strategy. They might change their technique. So that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to collect data over time. Musicians have the performance. Can I play this chord? Can I not play this chord? Can I play this drum beat? Can I not play it? It's very measurable and they're always measuring this stuff. So you really have to turn yourself into a good athlete or musician or scientist, however you want to look at it, because you want to know whether what you're doing is effective or not. And if it's not effective, pitch it. That's what I would say. So you got to be willing to pitch something that you really like doing if it's not giving you better outcomes. Mm-hmm. There's some nuance there though. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not, maybe you should continue walking distance. And walking distance is another thing that you can measure. I just read an article. I'm going to put it on the, the show notes. When they try to figure out whether speed of walking is more important to tell you about whether you're a community ambulator whether you can get along at the store, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or sp- if it's distance or speed, that's more important. And it turns out they're both really important. So distance is another thing that you can measure. But maybe you're working a lot on distance, but your speed isn't going up. So maybe you want to work a little bit more on speed and a little bit less on distance, or maybe it's stretching that you need to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe a good stretching program, or maybe you can use something we talked about in the last episode, bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing so that your arm swing is better. But if it's not working, definitely, you know, be an athlete, be a musician and try to figure out what you can do to kind of shake things up so that you can start making progress again. Mm -hmm. I think the brain likes some novelty anyway. It needs that novelty in order for it to change. That's true. And I think you're talking about like, blocked practice and distributed practice. And there's a whole bunch of things Mm -hmm. that, I mean, novelty could be you're doing it a different time of day yeah, or you're doing it um, before or after a meal. could be that as well. But yeah, the brain does like novelty. Mm -hmm. I I was listening to my favorite podcast, my second favorite podcast. Sorry, Deb. (laughs) This is my first favorite podcast. You you were listening to yourself again. That's right. Uh, The... um, (laughs) the Brain Science Podcast, mm-hmm. and they were talking about, you know, how uh, dopamine is the like the feel-good, yeah. the feel-good neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. It's a, I think it's also a hormone. It's one of those neurotransmitter hormones. Anyway, that novelty is something that gives you a shot of dopamine, the, the new and surprising thing. Even in music where, you know, all of a sudden it stops and then it starts again in a new direction, even that novelty will give you a jolt of dopamine. That's interesting. Yeah, so novelty, that's a good one. And it'll keep your, your progress young. Mm-hmm. So um, okay, I could talk about my one of my favorite therapists of all time, Signe Brunstrom. Okay. Is, she's, she's another one that should probably get a card. Yep. Mm-hmm. So is Brunstrom, because she was a PT, we're taking credit for her. Was she um, big in OT? Yeah, somebody, somebody that we teach about was a PT and an OT. Hmm. Oh. There's, there's a few of those kinds of people around. Mm-hmm. Um, Singing Brunstrom is a hero of mine. Uh, so she was a Swedish Fulbright scholar. She came to the United States after World War II, and she helped the troops get back on their feet. She worked at Kessler, where I worked, before I worked there. But it was always thrilling to know that she had worked there and 
graced the halls of, of the old building at Kessler in West Orange, New Jersey. And she was an absolute genius. And a lot of her, there were more famous contemporaries that came up with other treatment options that weren't nearly as effective. But the test that she came up with is, is uh, I call it the Brunstrom, the Brunstrom test. It, it measured where a stroke survivor was in the arc of recovery. All right, there's six stages in the arc of recovery. And unlike a lot of her contemporaries, she was a true scientist. And the reason she knew that the predictable arc of recovery was predictable was she kept testing them over and over hundreds of people stroke survivors. And she noticed it was the same thing over and over and over again. And she came up with this test that she published in 1975 in her great book called Movement Therapy, which I have a copy of. It was very hard to find. And I love that book. It's all black and white and it's her doing her thing. And in there, she outlines the test. Now, 1970, she publishes Movement Therapy and puts her test on there. Okay. In 1975, another Swede by the name of Axel AXL uh, Fugelmeyer shows reliability and validity of her test. So he does all. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Crunches all the numbers. And in there, he puts, it, it was translated from Swedish into English. I went blind reading this in, early in my career. Um, and it was a not very good description of what the test was. And when I first got involved in clinical research, they said, well, look, the Fugelmeyer, you're going to be doing the Fugelmeyer, but there's a manual for it. I was like, it turns out there was no manual. There was just this 1975 article. I didn't know it was in Brunstrom's book. And nobody oh. said that it was in Brunstrom's book. And nobody knew how to do this darn test. So to this day, we call that test the Fugelmeyer. It's not the Brun- the That's not right. I know. Typical men stealing women's work. It happens all the time. It's got to stop happening. It's called, let's call it the, at least the Brunstrom Fugelmeyer. It's really Fugelmeyer out of there. It's the Brunstrom test. And um, do you think, I'm sorry, do you think that this podcast will affect change? I hope so. Let's Um, start. Yeah. Do you hear about this woman who came up with the mathematical calculation to find the, I think, the size of a black hole? I mean, a black hole, there is no light. Nothing escapes it. So it's a bunch of mathematical calculations, and this one woman came up with it. And it was so nice to see that she got credit. I mean, Crick and Watson's work on the double helix of DNA, that was based on a woman's work who had taken a photograph of the DNA. And they looked at it and they go, oh, we know what this is now. And they stole her work and they didn't give her the Nobel. And I don't know. It's crazy. It's crazy. And Time. the thing about scientists, they are ego driven. And if you don't give them credit, they're not going to do the work. And so, we, you know, we got women that need to get credit. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to me. I'm preaching to the converted, I'm sure. But um, yeah. So, One of the things that's amazing about her test is that it correlates really well with MRI data, so brain scanning. Okay. And we did a study where we showed that transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, which is this way of touching the motor cortex without having to open up the skull, because prior to that, you had to open up the skull and use fine wire electrodes. This We had one uh, at our lab at University of Cincinnati, and- You would look at the person's MRI data and then send electromagnetism into the portion of the brain that maybe you thought controlled the wrist extensors. And you'd go, click, 
and the wrist would come up. It was so weird. Oh, it was like so cool. Frankenstein. <laughs> you got to move people around and they had no control over it. And it was fantastic. And I found out that there was a pleasure center in the brain. So I tried to convince my colleagues that we should just try to zap that pleasure center like, you know, like rats on cocaine. And they said, no, that's probably unethical, oh. which I thought was wrong. We should have done it. Anyway, so one of the tests that we did was we tried to figure out whether or not the white matter after a stroke, and that's the myelinated axons, it's like the wires that go from like the brain to the foot. If the stroke hit that white matter and we use transcranial magnetic stimulation, if there was a deficit in the white matter, would that correlate well with the lower extremity Brunstrom test, Brunstrom Fugelmeyer test. And sure enough, it did. And what wow. was weird was she wrote the thing in 1970 before there was MRI and before there was TMS. This is what genius is made of. It's kind of wow. like Einstein, you know, how like the, rel the theory of relativity is still being proven way after his death. They just did one with a atom collider in Europe or whatever it was. I don't know what they did, but you know, they yeah. come up with this brilliant stuff. They set a template for the rest of us, and then we use it. So um, that test, the Fugelmeyer or the Brunstrom Fugelmeyer is one that I did a tremendous amount of. But that's one that's tough to learn, and it's tough to do. Do you want to explain a little bit about it or not really? Sure, absolutely. Okay. So what Brunstrom figured out was that early after a brain injury, there's not going to be any movement. They're going to be flaccid. And flaccid, if you've ever moved somebody around who's flaccid on the weaker side, it feels weird. It feels like, and I got a piece of paper in my hand. It feels like that. It feels like moving paper around or less than paper. Paper has more resistance. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you felt that, it would be a certain score. And you would be able to predict that the rest of the scores would all be zeros. Because if they're flaccid there, you know, with the, with the arm, then they're not going to be able to do anything. But there's something just after flaccid and it's reflexive, reflexes. And so you test reflexes. You do the biceps and the triceps. And I think there's the finger flexors as well. In the lower extremity, it's the patellar reflex and the um, Achilles. And, and so there's this place after flaccid, but before movement where the reflexes are evident. So you hit them with the tomahawk. I'll get my tomahawk um, reflex hammer um, that uh, I don't even know why I have it on my desk because I don't use it right now. But um, And you can't see it because it's a podcast. But trust me, it's a little tomahawk thing and they hit you on the patella and um, and then you get that, that monosynaptic stretch reflex. So that she scored that because that's an important thing. If you have reflexes, it means something's trying to get through from the central nervous system. Yeah. And then from there, you would do a series of movements, all these movements that therapists hate, like the flexor synergy. So the full flexor mm -hmm. synergy is this, and you can't see it, but I would call it like answering a telephone. My shoulder is at 90 degrees, the elbow is fully flexed, and the uh, forearm is supinated. And you test how much they can do. Now, mm -hmm. they can't do that. What they do is something like this, and you score, well, it's a zero, one, two score. I got a one at the shoulder and a one at the elbow. It's not fully flexed and he's not supinated at all. He's pronated. And you go through these things and you start okay. to score these zero, one, twos. Then they, 
then it's more challenging. Can you raise your arm in front of you into pure shoulder flexion, abduction? You do things behind the back. And boy, man, that Fugelmeyer or that Brunstrom Fugelmeyer has been just the gold standard in outcome measures for, um, for stroke. Now, what does this have to say to people that have had a stroke? Not much, because you're not going to Fugelmeyer yourself. It's not going to work. No, so, you're not. So I would stick with the second grader concept. Whatever you do, mm-hmm. just measure it. Do a lot of videotaping. I know it's hard to videotape yourself when you don't move well or you don't talk well, but you got to do it because it'll give you a real sense. Day to day, you're not going to see changes. Yeah. You're too close to the work of art. You got to be able to take the videotape, let it sit for a while, and then do another videotape and compare the two. Do you think there's value in using the Brunstrom stages in in the clinic? I think there is for stroke survivors because it gives you a universal language. Mm -hmm. So, it starts out with no movement and then they have their highly synergistic. They can move, but only within that big mass pattern of movement. And during that period, we're getting into like the second and third stage, spasticity starts to creep in. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to do a whole podcast on spasticity, by the way. And okay. We, um, because spasticity isn't a bad thing. It's just a protection mechanism that the muscles are trying to do. And then after you get over that arc of the third stage, it's, there's a total of six of them spasticity starts to go down and you start to move out of synergies. And then you get the sixth stage, which is, you know, and you can plateau and not reach the sixth stage, but it's darn near normal movement. Mm -hmm. The only time that you can tell that they have a neurological deficit is if they move very quickly or or if they're very fatigued. I think you actually mentioned fatigue before. Yeah. 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 The reason I'm bringing this up is because it's it seems like it's well I don't I don't see it being used and it's it's kind of like common talk where we teach students about it but we don't really use it and maybe we should be using it at least in our documentation um, on eval- on evaluation and then throughout the progress notes. I will say it's a hard test to learn and it's a yeah. Hard- hard test to do correctly. But here's the good news. There, We have deconstructed the Fugelmeyer usually as a way to see if somebody qualifies for a study. So Mm -hmm. there's different hand things that you do. You could do just the hand and those you can learn pretty easily. Or you might more be more interested in the proximal muscles. So you might just do any any element that involves the shoulder. I want to do those four or five elements. And then you still have an apples to apples test. So as a clinician, you don't have to learn the whole Fugelmeyer. You can just learn the part that resonates with you. As long as you document what you've done. Right. Yeah. Like, do you do the, um, whatchamacallit, the Berg balance test? Well, I was working in acute care, so no, but yes, it is It's something that people do a lot. Yeah. You don't have to do the whole Berg balance. You could do one thing like how, you know, the one where you reach forward and it's how far you can reach forward before you lose your balance. You could do just that. Yeah. Like just the functional. Yeah. So we deconstruct these outcome measures all the time and we modify them to fit the study or Mm -hmm. to fit the clinical situation. Absolutely. Okay. So this is kind of cool because I think it gives clinicians a little bit of permission to be more creative, even in their documentation, using using some of these measurement tools. As long as you, and, and that's what I always tell students or anyone that I'm working with, as long as you state what you've done, and then if, if you're the person working 
consistently with a client, then keep keep doing the same thing over time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and documenting it is, you know, just make it obvious to everybody. So so that if another therapist comes in and wants to follow your work, you're doing apples to apples stuff. Yeah. Um, that if you say we did the 10 meter walk test in the hallway, he was wearing his flat shoes that were the sneakers and he used the small base quad cane or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. just set it up apples to apples. Yeah. The other outcome measure I did want to mention that's going to be important in our podcast about spasticity, (laughs) which I'm forcing, (laughs) I'm forcing into, I have to have a spasticity one, um, is the modified Ashworth. Yeah. Which is, you know, clinicians often claim that they're treating spasticity to reduce it and they're not measuring um, the spasticity. So the modified Ashworth is a quick, dirty, it's reliable and relatively reliable, relatively valid test, super simple to do. Put in the show notes, an article that I wrote about the Ashworth, the modified Ashworth, okay. and uh, and it'll give you the positions for both the upper extremity. And I think I'm the only person that's ever written down the positions for the lower extremity. I think other people have have other people have done it subsequently. Okay, they came to me with a clinical trial. They said you're doing the Ashworth in the lower extremity. I couldn't find the positions, so I wrote it up, put it in an article, and that's going to be in the show notes. Perfect. Absolument. Awesome. That's French. So far, we've spoken. Spoke. We've spoken. So far, we have spoken English, Spanish, Italian, and absolument. They're one of the few French words I know. That's excellent. I know zero <laughs> French. You know, is it? Uh, oh, de, we, 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 we. No, oh, you know, we, 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 we. That that's at the WC. Um, <laughs> and baguette. Well, and yes, I croissant. Do know and yeah, there's a lot of French we know. <laughs> you know what? I think we've hit the silly time. I know. We, do, you, do you have anything else that you wanted to say about whatchamacallit? What are we discussing? Oh, we're, yeah. We're, no, we're talking about measuring. Measuring outcomes. Measuring outcomes. And this was largely geared towards the survivors at home. So once they're at home doing this and some very simple strategies for how to do it. And I love the video recording. I know some people are shy to look at themselves on camera, but you don't have to show it to anybody. Um, you know, and the people that love you won't care anyway. They will be happy to see your progress. Yeah. Yeah. And and with the phone, it's super simple. It is. You it's a great strategy. Yeah. So do it. Did I say camera? Um, you said video. Oh, my God. Hey, I called yeah, the meds out. So. <laughs> <laughs> More bloopers. I don't even know what I say. Thank you for doing most of the talking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know you've been teaching all day and I had the day off today, so I had the energy. Yeah, I I actually had a headache at the end of that one. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was that must have been rough. I get headaches? <laughs> I get headaches, too. Not, I don't often get headaches. I used to, then I stopped. But today, I think it's just a, it's a lot of thinking to help a student understand um, manual muscle testing. Oh, is that what you were doing? Manual muscle testing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah that is that is a difficult one. Mm-hmm. That's another yeah. thing you can do. You can measure strength through manual muscle testing. You can. Yeah, yeah there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And we, sh- we can talk about that another time. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks oh, so much. Okay. I had a ball as usual. Me too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. 
We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.